And good morning, listeners. You're tuned into 33.3 FM. I uh, hope that you are all nice and comfy, locked in your rooms. Hope you aren't getting too stir crazy in there. Uh, we've been locked in here for a long time ourselves, haven't we, Torm? Well, that was nothing to do with the virus. That's just- yeah, yeah. We've just been here for a long, long, long time. Um, and speaking of which, somehow someone seems to have been able to sneak your way in here, um, or we open the door. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself here, miss? Uh, yes, uh, my name is, uh, Kate, Kate Cargill. Uh, I've, I've managed to wander my way into this bunker. It helps that all of the locks are rusted out. Did, did you know? Is that, is that what we're projecting now? Is that what things look from the outside now, bunker? Tom, when's the last time you changed that? I thought we installed a demon to do that. Did you run into a demon while you're getting in here by chance? Uh, uh, I ran into my, you know, the the ghost of my sweet grandma Mabel spoke to me, uh, and I trusted her. So when she asked to be set free, I I just did it. I didn't really question it. Was that all right? That I wrong? mean, like either like either case, where they're there or they're not, uh, present their own issues, but. At least we know what's happening now. Okay, so... I'm surprised because the demon was like a 57-year-old Pakistani man, so I'm pretty impressed that he managed to impersonate your Aunt Mabel. We haven't really given him much else to do, really. All right, so you've wandered your way into the studio. We gave you directions uh, because apparently you have something that you'd like to talk about, something of interest. So, yeah, go into that. Uh, yes, so uh, I am. I am creating a sort of uh, a, a fascinating uh, metafiction for you to explore. I'm I'm creating a set of one shots for Unknown Armies Third Edition. They're basically uh, meant to be uh, ready to go, pick up and play scenarios that come with um, pre generated characters. Um, so that you know, if you have, I sort of joke that like some people you know they they got third edition when it came out and they're like really excited to play it like a kid bring opening up a nintendo on christmas and then you get that book open and you put it on your shelf and that's where it lives while you play many many games of of fifth edition (laughs) um so i sort of wanted to create something that people could sort of bring out like maybe if a regular player can't make it at at a different game and they could, you know, introduce their friends to this game that I really love um, and try something new. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my goal in writing the one shots uh, is to get get this game out on people's tables. Just to confirm here, uh, which division of the U.S. military were you hired by to work on this for? I assume you're a freelancer. I was pretty sure that MK Ultra was privatized. This is the U.S. government. Everything has been privatized. Yes, but specifically which part? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> a private contractor. You're at liberty to discuss uh, this. I, I'm, I'm not really, sh- I'm not really sh- sure. They, I, uh, I, I sort of, you know, had my own initiative to do this, okay. and I just sort of okay. accept the checks and don't really question it. Okay, we'll operate the on the assumption that that's true. It might be the actual government, or it might be the shadow government, we're not sure. You know, it had a weird acronym on it, and uh, I, it said that it was a charity fund for freelance artists. Uh, I assumed it was just, you know, some do-gooder through uh, a non-profit agency. Alright, well, perhaps that's that. for the best. Uh, so, you... 
from what we were discussing at, before the show, you got a book of three of these coming out. What's your plans for each of these? Uh, my plan right now is to release three as an anthology. Um, and depending on if it does well, if people like them, I might release more anthologies um, if, if people respond well to them. Uh, if they, if people don't respond or like people aren't really playing them, like, you know, I have other stuff I can work on. So that's kind of my plan right now. Uh, I don't have plans to release them individually. Is there some sort of snappy title you got for all three of these for the anthology? One shots. Fair enough. That has already been taken. You've got to come up with something else. <laughs> no, no, she's establishing herself as well, part of a extensive tradition here for the Unknown Armies War Game. I should say, I should say, technically, it's one shot, uh, one shots, and then I believe beneath that, it's like a series of standalone scenarios by Kate Cargill. So, like, it has my name prominently displayed, so people don't get confused. If if Atlas takes issue with that, like, I'm happy to give it like a subtitle i think it should be catherine goggle presents in like big letters and then one shots in small letters beneath it um i don't remember the exact title that i was considering giving it was something to do with um like being isolated or being out in the sticks and it's really gonna bother me that i had sort of a working title in case this came up and now i don't remember it um but yeah all three of them are set in sort of like uh insular places so it was going to sort of emphasize that they're like they take in place in like sort of these these culturally distinct areas you're gonna remember in like 20 minutes and just yell it out and we'll be like what yeah i'm gonna remember the the minute we all hang up that's when i will remember so that's how it goes um yeah so you got three of these right um and they're all based around like by the sticks, do you necessarily mean small town America or just somewhere? No, so one is in one is in Detroit. So not that is not a small yeah, town. Yeah, go at into all, these a bit more. What's uh what's the set three to these? So um there's three one shots. Um the first one is runoff. That's the one that I currently have uh a second draft of. Runoff is the story of a farmer's son on the run from his agromancer dad. Uh, he's trying to make a major charge in order to clean the lake of an algal bloom. So uh, the it sort of operates as a pun because runoff is also what causes algal blooms. And that story is about like sort of these nerds in a small town trying to solve this problem with the minimum amount of bloodshed possible. Theoretically, that depends on your players. Uh, and it's uh, my friend Jonathan Philpot described it as Letterkenny meets Unknown Armies, which I think is a very accurate description. It's very much based on my life growing up in a small town near the lake and like what the people were like there and what the farmers were like and sort of how difficult it is sometimes in a small town to reconcile this sort of bucolic ideal of like farmers and what farmers are like and like the actual you know, poverty and and difficult work of being a farmer and like how tempting a magical shortcut would be in this kind of situation. Um, the second is called Firestarter. Uh, Firestarter is uh, very, very loosely based on the real events of a group of Florida Maoists who wanted to start a guerrilla war in the Everglades. Um, Florida Maoists for- is... You- 
You've got me. Yes, you've got me already. It is the most dangerous two words I've ever heard paired together. Yes. So uh, I have actually reset it to Okefenokee Swamp in Georgia, which is uh, a, a controversial decision. <laughs> um, but it's basically about the. Well, that's where Stalin's Georgia. from, right? So it makes sense. Oh. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, uh, we all know that he was secretly from Georgia, the United States. That's right, liberal. Um, so it's about these dirt poor Georgians who abscond to the swamp, uh, and all of them are avatars of the Firebrand. Um, and they're—I won't spoil too much about it—but they're there following a leader of this Maoist cell to try and start a, a Maoist revolution in the Okefenokee swamps of Georgia, and they sort of. Uh, they're all individually avatars following another charismatic avatar, and they sort of have to grapple uh, with their own strong personalities and his strong personality. Uh, and it's it's very it's influenced by Jailbreak, to be sure. Like this is a a game that, depending on how players decide to portray the people inside the game, can be either like deeply full of interpersonal conflict or it can turn out very different from that depending on the decisions they make uh i'm really excited to play this module because depending on what your players like i think that can really change how that game runs uh so this Uh, one you're leaning more into the whole um interplayer conflict type of thing that jailbreak emphasizes that most rpg scenarios it's it's definitely a possibility in Firestarter, it, it's I've sort of tried to have my cake and eat it too, and create a scenario that could either become interpersonal or could become cooperative, and it's in, and sort of be interested to see like how that cha- dynamic changes based on the players. Um, basically, when so all of my games have a startup phase where you sort of determine your relationship with the other players and sort of decide some basic questions about the world. Um, because the way that I write adventures as a GM is very character focused. And if I, you're creating a game with pre-gens, you really need people to like sort of spend a moment and really familiarize themselves with their character sheet, like customize it where that's possible within the parameters of the game. Um, and so the way that Firestarter is set up, you sort of get this baseline amount of information about each character that you use to sort of select your character. And then you make a couple decisions about how those characters know each other. And then based on some choices you make in the startup phase, you receive a secret that potentially changes the nature of your relationship to so the game. There are different secrets depending sense. on what decisions you make. Yes. So um, the the secret is uh, determined by what relationship you choose for the charismatic leader. So if you choose to make him your mentor, you receive a different secret than if you choose that he is your favorite. Well, that's that's smart. I like this. Uh, yeah. Like, what's an example of these? I'm intrigued. Um, okay. So. Spoiler alert! <laughs> um, it, like uh, like some other Unknown Armies games, it's better if you're planning on playing this game if you don't know the secrets because um, it depends on how you change it. So, so if um, you don't want spoilers, please skip ahead to insert timestamp here and you'll yeah. miss it. So um, each player um, was brought to the swamp by this charismatic leader, Frank Thomas. 
Frank Thomas worked as at a military base um, where he sort of met another person and they they found out about Mao's on guerrilla warfare from working in from being deployed in Afghanistan. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but like in real life, the counterinsurgency program in Afghanistan is actually based partially on Mao's on guerrilla warfare. <laughs> so these two guys uh, find out about. Mao, and then they sort of bring this back to the base with them in Georgia, and they recruit other people, um, and then they all abscond to Okifinoki. And each character, each pr- player chooses how their character knows uh, Frank. Um, is Frank a player character, or is he an NPC? He is an NPC. Okay, I got gotcha. um, And I will tell you, like, the big spoiler, since I'm already doing that. So Frank Thomas is not actually an avatar of the Firebrand, he's an avatar of the Demagogue. And so, like, the setup of the game is, like, you're sort of all firebrands, and depending on how you interact with him, like, that information may or may not be revealed. So each character picks a relationship with Frank. So, like, let's say he's your favorite, and then the GM sort of asks, like, oh, like, what does that mean? Like, do you, are you in love with Frank, or is he just really important to you? Uh, And then he has a dark secret that... that, or a complicated secret that corresponds to each relationship. So if you choose Frank as your favorite, you learn that when um, he learned that someone else at this camp in the swamp was scabbing on an Almart picket line, he followed them home and shot them. So like you sort of, the way that it's set up is I've tried to create this initial phase where you sort of build out a relationship where you see Frank positively and then you learn a secret about him and you have to decide if you still support Frank after learning the secret about him. And then if you don't support him, do you decide to tell the other players that, or are you just going to try and jockey for his position on your own? And if you do decide to play the, tell the other players, do you all pick the same person to jockey for his position or do you start jockeying against each other? So, like, those are the kind of decisions that I've sort of tried to set up. Is there, um, is there and a also- point of, like, is there, like, a time difference between you? Like, the secret is depending on what you choose. But I'm thinking from the way you desca- right. describe it, it almost seems like there should be, like, a couple of scenes of them not knowing the secret and establishing the relationship with him and then revealing the secret somehow, maybe. I don't know. It just seems like... If I was a GM and I was making a mistake, I might release the secret too early and miss out that early that that period of like, no, we love this firebrand avatar guy. Of course we do. Yeah, that is sort of like I, I do think that would be ideal. I guess you could have like mini scenes, but it's also a one shot, so I can't spend I worry about spending too much time building out that relationship because a lot of the one shot has to go to this other thing that's going on, which is that you have a ritual of ascension. <laughs> um, and that ritual will make Frank ascend into the statosphere sort of artificially. Um, and it also creates like this sort of other space that serves as like a pocket dimension to operate this base out of. So the way that that ritual works is it pads 20% onto somebody's uh, avatar skill. And if that padding reaches over 100%, they they just instantly ascend and become the vanguard of the revolution. I play a little fast and loose with Unknown Armies canon in this particular one shot. And so like a lot of the game 
is the players trying to potentially become the candidate for ascension instead of Frank. I mean, um, ritual seems to make sense. Uh, like, I'd imagine that whoever discovered this ritual, how they discovered it, they'd be keeping it very close to their chest because any avatar that is trying to become a godwalker, uh, if they find out about this, then they would be very interested and they would probably be very desperate to get a hold of this information. So there's an interesting little wrinkle there of how was this information discovered? Um, and what's stopping every other avatar across the United States from converging on this one um, camp of Maoists in the middle of Georgia to shake them down for information? So um, in the game, one of the player characters finds out about the ritual in their backstory, and they find out a about it in uh, actually a church, a Baptist church, um, as part of the... Um... So during the Civil War, um, you have the Confederacy, but there was actually as many or more people who were what were called layout gangs or like deserters, basically. And then you also have... You know, of course, like northern sympathizers. And then, of course, you have, you know, slaves who are trying to escape. And so she finds that it's related to sort of that history in this church. Um, but I will say, like, one thing that operates out of both the logic of both these one shots and then kind of how I approach third edition generally is like this game doesn't really concern itself with questions about other what other avatars are doing outside of this weird sort of pocket of, of players. So like for the purposes of this one shot, like as far as the players know, like the only avatars that exist are them. If that makes sense. Like it comes very much at like a street level kind of view, but the street level is the only view that the only perspective that the game ever gets. The way that they're looking at things is less in terms of, Oh, we're tapping into some, weird universal uh, cult power source that's granting us these powers and more just we're such revolutionary communists that the world itself is granting us these occult powers. Yes, it is closer to the second thing. Like in within the canon of the game, like there would be very few people or organizations that can keep track of everything the, the occult underground is doing. Like it'll be Nomon and maybe like TNI and the sleepers have like some files on what's happening, but it makes it like because it's such an obsessive individualist game from its very outset. Of course, like if you're like in the second edition, they had the division between like local, global, and cosmic campaigns. But for the general like local campaign, you just know what you're doing. You don't you don't care what the cabal like on over in the next state is doing because you have no idea, and it's it's a whole different pile of crazy. It still exists to a degree in the current edition and the way that objectives are set up, but in a one-shot, that's likely going to be less of a concern, so... Yeah, the the language that I use in the game's, like, background write-up is, um... Frank's research brought him somewhere a lot deeper and a lot stranger. Using the power of the firebrand archetype, he could ascend to the heavens to become the red flag of the vanguard itself and implant himself in the subconscious mind of humanity, inspiring the world to revolutionary fur- 
fervor. So like, and uh, the the language that they use in this ritual is immunitize the revolutionary eschaton. So like, this is language that I've like very deliberately for the purposes of introducing someone to unknown armies kind of tried to divorce from sort of uh, the unknown armies like canon, which I think like the lore of unknown armies is very cool. And like this game obviously would not exist in any way without it, because like the whole idea of like ascension and firebrands and like how that all works is is intimately tied with the mechanics of this game. But the game doesn't really like like you've said, the game doesn't really deal with the questions of like what this what it would mean to have a ritual that could ascend I should say specifically a demagogue or a firebrand. It wouldn't work on like the avatar of the mother. Um, but okay. like, obviously like even just within those two archetypes or like other, like it would, pro- it might work on like the true King or something like that, like other leadership archetypes, but like uh, in like a metagame thing, you could tell an interesting story about a, a ritual that would do something like that. Cause that would be obviously very precious and people would care a lot about it. But this game is really only interested in like this small group of people and like what this means for them rather than thinking about what this means for the world. So I mean, it does think about what it means for the world in the sense of what would it mean if, if a Maoist ascended and like, how would that change the American subconscious? But like, it doesn't deal with like those questions in the sense of like, the unknown armies in the larger context. So yeah, in the context of the uh, lore of the game, quote unquote, um, you're trying to move away from all the baggage associated with that and more have something aimed at players totally new to this whole thing, aimed at complete ponies. Is that what you're kind of going for with these yeah, one shots? It's it's very yeah. much aimed at ponies. Uh, it's aimed at people who know nothing at all about unknown armies, ide- ideally. And this could be a way for somebody who is interested in this game to bring new people into it and sort of show what it's about uh, without having to spend time explaining like these sort of these sort of big concepts that the game is dealing yeah. with. Yeah, yeah. Well, this this is what the invisible clergy yeah. is, and I'm going to spend yeah. 20 minutes explaining it yeah. to you. And don't get me wrong, I love explaining what the invisible clergy is. I'll do that any day of the week. <laughs> but maybe my friends who have been playing uh, some Faerun games, yeah, that's don't sort of an issue I have with the way <laughs> bringing people into this game is sort of handled. You know, everyone gets super excited about the whole reality is a representative democracy thing, yada yada yada, and Really, that doesn't need to be a huge part of the game. I like that third edition's moved away from that in a lot of ways into just being a game about weird urban fantasy, conspiracy, and urban legends. Because all the invisible clergy stuff, it's cool if the players decide that they're like, hey, all this magic stuff... That it works is really weird. We'd like to look into why all this works, and then you have someone to present them with. But there's tons of campaigns where the players just don't really care about that and are totally satisfied with magic works. I will push back slightly on that, but like, I know I completely agree with what you're saying. But I feel that with Unknown Armies, the whole the weird magical democracy can, governing no, reality no. and all that it's it doesn't you don't have to put that in the forefront. But it does provide a structure for the game which distinguishes it from like other um, like any kind of urban fantasy game 
or like a horror game set in the modern era. Like it's a very it gives it a distinct flavor that you're not going to get with like like a Lovecraftian horror games in the modern age or like something like cult because each has a different metaphysics but you don't have to like shove yeah. the metaphysics down one thing I, I really like about the the sort of representative democracy aspect of Unoraris is it provides a really wonderful scaffolding to structure yes. npcs around um and like one thing i like one thing i really love about unknown army's third edition is i don't think this is really intentional on the part of the designers but those games can really have a wonderful sense of place in the way that I think maybe Tui was not quite as strongly invested in. So like I'm running a mini campaign right now that's about how the T is the MBTA in Boston is cursed. And like third edition tells stories like that that are about a community and how tempting and seductive it is to wrap these sort of consensual reality magical powers into into what you personally want for your community and and the people around you um and like a lot of the the campaign settings for third edition are about this as well like heroin highway is based on you know a small massachusetts town during the opioid epidemic like those are people who care about a certain thing for a certain reason really strongly and like you can really feel sort of this embodied sense in third edition of of this is this is something we that's so intertangled with our life that we will do anything to change it and if we have magical power at our disposal it's that's so seductive and it makes it so easy to make decisions like like trucking with demons and things like that because it's it's so important for me to deal with the opioid epidemic because it's part of my life if you're that seems to be something that you're from what you've mentioned thus far are really interested in that focus on community and it shows up in the couple one shots you've told us about thus far. Would you say that your third one also focuses on that? Yes. So, so Motown showdown is the third of the one shots. It is the one I've done the least work on. So it's a little bare bones, but that one shot is about Detroit very specifically. And in Detroit, historically, um, there was an interstate that was erected called the 375, and it was literally erected by bulldozing the black neighborhood that is part of Detroit, which is at the time called Black Bottom. Its name is not related to the fact that black Americans live there, but that that is what the neighborhood was called. So the game is reset. The game is set in the modern day, and you have these two cabals, a cabal of Viaturges and a cabal of Urbanomancers. And the Viaturges um, want to keep this 375 as part of a ritual to resurrect the dead auto industry in Detroit, which was a source of income for many like real life Black Americans and helped build the Black middle class during the auto era of the American industry. And the Urbanomancers are trying to destroy the 375 to bring back the Black neighborhood that was demolished. Um, during the during urban renewal as many black neighborhoods demolished across the united states but in detroit like that that contrast is especially striking uh and i have my friend sean is going to help me writing that because obviously like as a white woman from new england like this is outside of my experience and i need to you know do my homework and dot all my i's and cross my t's but i'm i'm really excited to tell this story um that's about these really strong personalities clashing over something that's really important to both of them. 
I also like the idea that both of them are well-intentioned, like specifically well-intentioned towards the black community, but they're like, no, we have to rebuild the industry. No, we have to rebuild the community. It seems like an ideological struggle um, with, or like a struggle of means rather than yes. ends, which is yeah. interesting. I, I really wanted to tell a story like based on, so like I'm an activist and I've spent um like the past several years of my life getting involved with activism. And I think Unknown Armies called to me very specifically because of my history in activism and like that sense of like a pressing need to accomplish something when you see the world sort of deteriorating around you and like how strong those personalities often are and how they clash. And like Motown Showdown was sort of born out of how much I learned um, about urban renewal like from other activists, from black activists that I know and and the way that that sort of changed the landscape of America in like this very specific way, but how complicated that can become for people who are tied up in that struggle. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to tell, to, to write that one shot as well. Is Okay, this is going to be a weird technical question, but I was, I happened to be reading about like urban freeways the other day just when I was Wikipedia. It's a crawling. fascinating subject. And like, <laughs> it's really interesting. Like so many places. Um, oh, I was, I was, I think it was on rational wiki or something. They were talking about it, about how all these cities built them. And then just like 40 years later, ripped them out. And we're like, that was just a terrible idea. We should not do that. Um, that's, I know it's interesting. As far as the one shot itself, um, my question here is, are players, Playing both factions? Is only one faction being controlled by players? What exactly is so, the plan? I probably here? won't know the final answer to that question until I sit down and write it. But tentatively, my plan is that the players choose a faction and all of the players are either Viaturges or or Urbanomancers. And then based on which faction they choose, that determines sort of this track that well, I don't really like that word. <laughs> That's a word with a lot of baggage in our role playing. But like that determines the decisions the GM makes about sort of, oh gosh, what what Greg Solzy wonderfully calls blowback, which is what the consequences of the decisions that the players make. One thing you could do as just a design element, if you were having the choice of which cabal you want to join, is in writing it, you could do like it from both perspectives and in the book have like each page although it's a pdf so it doesn't really count but like every odd numbered page is the viaturges <laughs> and the other even numbered page is the is the other guys um i mean the nice thing is that since you're doing um pregens here you can just reuse the same characters no matter which yeah, faction that is kind of the nice picking. thing is that you build out these you know probably eight characters because I, I hate myself and I want to punish myself, but you can then reuse the stats <laughs> of, of whichever, whichever characters don't get picked for the GM's characters. And that can sort of determine things. But like, it, I, like I said, I won't know until I sit down about it. Like there's, there's obviously there's other structures at play too. Like um, there's people who are not so nuanced and interesting from the perspective of, you know, the person picking up the module set who have, you know, stake in that game too. Like 
city planners who, you know, would really love to turn this new neighborhood into like a gentrification playground for like rich white people or like people who are. We're going to build a whole food, yeah. whole foods. Yeah. Right? yeah. And like, I just called it a whole foods. Yeah, And like that, like they're already talking about taking down the 375 and like that could very well happen. Like in real life that it could you know, have been have they they might have destroyed this historic black neighborhood only to sort of layer this kind of sanitized, you know, upper upper class condo condo building suite on top of it. Like that's entirely credible. But then on the other side of things, you have not very likable people like, you know, white wealthy suburbanites who like to be able to quickly get in and out of the city so that they can stay far away from it. So like there's there's kind of bad guys and good guys on both sides. I really love telling stories like that. <laughs> if I know anything about how these things usually go is you'll finish writing this scenario and you'll put it up and you'll edit it and you'll put it on the stratosphere and like the day after they'll be like, yeah, we're going to tear it down. Oh, no. Which is, uh, is it because of like formatting or like content? No, we mean, he, I think he means tear it down in the sense of the freeway. Oh, yeah, right? You're... No, like they do, there is yeah. sort of a, an almost uh, prophetic quality to Unknown Army times that's deeply uncanny. <laughs> A great example yeah, the, of that would be... The, what is it called? Uh, oh, oh, this, yes. Um, Fly to Heaven. Fly to Heaven. Yeah, Fly that's to heaven. the name of it, yeah. Oh, for those yeah, of you who the, don't... The 9-11 predicting to be, scenario. To be fair yeah. to Greg, other movies also... Also... Uh, do some was, it, was it Greg that wrote yes, that I one? Yes, I think Greg did write that one. Yeah, he wrote Jailbreak and Fly to Heaven as far as stuff in one shot. Supposed to be a good one shot, though. <laughs> Well, to be, fair, it, to be fair, like the Lone Gunman TV show also yeah, predicted Yeah, there's like a couple of things. So there's a couple bad. things that predicted 9-11. It was already an idea that had splitted through a people's brains before it actually happened. So like, I don't want to put too much of the bird, the Cassandra burden on Greg's shoulders. Like that, that was already an idea that's floating around. And like, sometimes things also happen because they're floating around and people are talking about them before they happen. So like, and get the idea of, hey, if I hijack this plane, then I can slam it into some otherwise very difficult to take down a landmark. Well, at least, at least when they found, when they looked through like Osama bin Laden's computer <laughs> after they killed yeah, him, they right? didn't find no, like a PDF suck. of the one shots. <laughs> Bless you, Greg. No, all they found, I think, was like a bunch of porn and video games, uh, including Counter Strike. Funny enough. Um, so one thing I like about third edition, well, like is kind of a weird to use there, but one thing I think is really interesting about third edition is, uh, Nomon and like, I kind of love Nomon, but there's also like, Nomon is like both deeply prophetic and also like extremely off the mark because Nomon like predicts so many interesting things about like AI intelligence and like how, they did a bad job <laughs> uh, and how like sloppy and haphazard and personal it feels and the way it tracks you. But ironically, like it's all under the umbrella of like this sort of airsats NSA, which of course, like in the real world now, like we know that a lot of that surveillance is actually done by like private companies by like who are trying to profit off of it and not so much the government. So like, it feels like sort of at odds with itself where like on one hand you have like this deeply prophetic, take about artificial intelligence and then it's like but it's the government 
and it, it feels a little less real to me. I mean, even though the government does do some of that, but like I think of that as more being affiliated with like big corps like Google and Facebook and stuff like that. Well, they they both do yes. it. For it's sure. Right. It's not yeah. just that. It's not just that they both do it. It's that they share well, information. Yeah, it's that. Yeah. It's uh, a big thing. Um, I mean, the thing that far, Flex Echo is probably my favorite of the new factions from the third uh, edition. Yeah, I love Flex Echo. Because it's but, the most interesting and well-developed yeah. faction in the new edition. Yeah. Like, I, I know you're a, a 3E person, and I, do, I feel I'm becoming more over onto your side of things because um, I've been rereading all the 2E stuff and realizing that like I kind of had like a rose-tinted glasses view of things because I just remembered all the cool stuff. And then I'm like, oh, there's a lot of stuff in here that I don't need. <laughs> I Actually, mean, I haven't seen it with better. any lore I read, though. And like definitely 3rd edition. Most of what I love about 3rd edition is the stuff that's implied by the powers that people have in book one play. Like to me, like the good, the the really delicious juicy steak part of of third edition is book one play and then like the the crunchy rules bits in the second book like the objective setting and like the cork board oh and the demon stuff is pretty cool too but like the the factions like there's some fun stuff in there that you can definitely mine that i think is cool but like even in third edition like i really see the lore is take it or leave it like a lot of it's kind of mixed for me I think my issue with the way the third edition does lore, at least, is that it's a bit too broadly drawn compared to second edition because of just how much little space that they have. Like, with the second edition and first edition, you had the space to dedicate entire source books to one faction and their NPCs and their operations and their goals, yada, yada, yada. Second edition has, like, 10 pages for each they don't even stat up any of the big npcs that's a, so, that's a big problem for me is the lack of npcs yeah. not given a lot in, of detail in terms of like content like that book four is like the strongest like if you if yeah. you have listeners at home if you have the three unknown armies books that came like you know in the sleeve um, or if you only have one and two because you only bought the parts you actually need to play. And if you're like, do I want any of this other content? Like, definitely pick up book four because it has a lot of, like, cool... It's got some cool avatar paths. It's got some cool adept magic. It's got, like, stats for, like, all kinds of, like, random NPCs that are really handy, like cops. And, like, there's an alder woman in there. Like, NPCs that I use all the time in Unknown Armies games. It would be wonderful to just have stats that I could rip. Like... Yeah, solid recommend book four. <laughs> I agree. Book four is great. I like book four and book, book five. Book five is also very good. And then three is the other one out. Three is weird. Three, I think Greg three may is have been up to great. something sinister with that one. Three is the kind of book that's fun to flip through when you're sitting on the can, but like if you're sitting down to plot out a story, I don't find that helpful. There's just not a lot of resources yeah. there. It's supposed to like give you a brain spark but i get that from personally speaking from something a bit more structured that you like the type of thing you see in two four and five so you're saying i should take my reveal book and put it in the toilet next to my calvin hobbs comics and just read it there it's it is a good coffee table book it is that good sort of just flip through for a few months i said on. that as a goof but like I, I i think maybe max wouldn't love it if i did that with his book <laughs> i'm like that would be pretty good can reading actually because you just flip through read an entry like oh uh trash columns that's a lot of fun maybe i can use that and then you put it down and you let it stew in there for a little while and like you don't have to 
try to build a, an adventure around that. Okay, so shifting back to the one shots yes. that you're working on here. <laughs> so what's your experience been like so far with running and or writing the ones that you have done? That? So I've only run one of them uh, so far, which was runoff. I think David had a very different experience. Because it, it, when I read it, they literally ran off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, like, that definitely influenced, like, some of the writing. Like, I've now updated that one shot to, like, sort of... And I can talk a bit, a more, bit more about that in a minute. But, like, when I ran it, it went, like, sh- like, better than I thought it would. Like, I was expecting it to feel a little rough or for them to stumble around a lot. But what happened is I had a player who... I was like, hey, I'm playtesting this one shot. Like, do, do you guys want to play this? And they were all like really into it. I had mentioned unknown times before, like the way you might to a friend who you're like trying to get interested in the game. And one of my players really loved the game. Like he's he's the type of role player who like regularly picks up new interesting games. Like he's a big fan of like Eclipse Phase. Uh, and uh, I think he picked up Trophy and like some other games like this that are like kind of niche. And, like, he actually sat down and read not the whole book, but, like, the parts of the book that, like, are interesting to new players. And so when I said I had an adept character, he's like, yes, I want to play the adept. Like, he knew, he came in, like, he already loves playing wizards. And then, like, I I was like, hey, I have this agromancer adept. And he was immediately into the idea of that. And then the other players all really resonate. I was very lucky they all really resonated with um, the other two characters. Um, Deb wasn't played in this game, but uh, Alexis and uh, Joe were. Uh, and like they, they read the backstories and they were like immediately really into them. I was very lucky. I did do the startup questions, which definitely helped. Um, so the, the player character that played Trevor, the agromancer, is from an agricultural region north of Syracuse, New York. So like a place that is similar to the place in the game. And he sort of immediately understood sort of the psyche of this character. And like one thing that really amazed and impressed me about my player who was playing Trevor is of course, is at the front of the adventure, like Trevor comes in, he's like, my dad is chasing me and like this horrible thing has happened. And the, the two player characters that the other two people had picked Joe and Alexis don't have as much skin in the game of the town and they're like oh like we should get rid of your dad like we should you know figure out something horrible to do to him to keep him from doing this he's like no no I think he's really upset like he just loves the farm and I love the farm and like we have to save the farm at any cost and so like he immediately sort of rocked this adept mindset of an agromancer which is like the farm is the most important thing and I can't do anything that would sacrifice that um, so I was really lucky, like the pieces all just kind of naturally fell into place for me in a way that I, it might not happen in other cases. You have these characters set up, you have the setup of, all right, my dad just tried to kill me. Where does the one shot sort of go from there? So, so like once that scaffolding is set up, what it becomes about is sort of the tension between these two goals. And there's the tension of the two, like more interpersonally woven characters versus the two characters who are more invested in the town. So in my scenario, you have Alexis and Joe who feel emotionally protective of Trevor and they want to save him. And you have Trevor who wants to save the town. And, you know, if things go well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. The characters begin to care about the town as much as Trevor does. 
Um, and so what it becomes about is we have to keep Trevor safe long enough to fix the algal bloom problem, at least until we can figure out something better. What was really wonderful about that game is is in this game, like the the solution the farmers come up with is we can get rid of the algal bloom if one of the agromancers kills their son for a major charge. So the players have to find a way to sort of keep the algal bloom at bay long enough to figure out something better. And there's a few different ways you can do that in the game. Uh, one is by juicing up an agromancer charge called fertility that makes land really fertile. And like by like sort of massaging that, you can sort of make this bloom stave off for a long time. And you can do that by sacrificing cows or you can do it by sacrificing people if you want to go that route. Um, but my player became really invested in this sort of agromancer mindset. And he says, well, you know, we can make, we can all have the farmers come together uh, and we can have Alexis sort of push on her mother, who is a member of the city council and, and sort of pressure her to cut the farmers a little slack. And we can use uh, Joe's mesmer ability to pressure the farmers into all giving up just a few of their cows to sort of stave this off. But Trevor then says, but I want to solve the problem a different way long term. I want to find a way to make a major charge that isn't killing me. And so my player um, looks at his character's backstory. And like one of Trevor's sort of obsessions is this idea of creating a zero waste farm, which like if you're an ag nerd is like this idea that the farm is sort of its own contained ecosystem and like nothing you don't have any runoff in a zero waste farm because everything is composted and recycled back into the earth and then used to make more agricultural products. So he's like, what if I made every farm in the county a zero waste farm? Would that be a major charge? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that would be a major charge. I would let you. And so what they end up doing is like short term, they get the farmers to to kill a few of their cows but trevor sort of with the, sort of a little bit of pressure from joe's mesmer power that sort of convinces people supernaturally is they get the city council to agree that they're going to do this long term uh if they cut the farmers a little slack short term and like the the game sort of ends with this like determination to get every every farm in the county to become a zero waste farm which is, is like a like if you're not an ag nerd, like that's a huge thing to do, but like it's such a an interesting note to end on, and like it was so clever. Like I never would have, I I had never even thought of that. Like I include it at the end of the shot now as like a potential solution, but like that he thought of that was like so cool to me. Like he really inhabited Trevor's mind in a way that I don't think just any player might. So yeah. <laughs> I really, I really like in Anonami's when occasionally people can come up with like something, yeah, like impressive but like really mundane solution. And we're like, no, 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 we, no, fuck the magic. We just like look at the situation. We just need to do this, and it's fine. Yeah. It's like, yes, actually, I mean, like you're magic right. is definitely involved in that. But yeah, like there's something very like and and runoff. Like I should say, like both, you know, for you guys and also for people listening at home. Like it's really grounded in this idea of a community that like cares deeply about each other and about um like this weird small town dynamic and like it like i i mentioned letter kenny earlier and like i recently actually watched that show and like it is very much like of the same sort of 
cut from the same cloth where it's like about the weird dynamic between people in a small town and how the town becomes important and meaningful to you. And like, I recognize that that's not something that's going to resonate with every single person that picks up this module set. There's some people are going to be like, why do I care about farmers in a small town? And like, to me, as someone that grew up around farmers in a small town, like, it's like, well, obviously we care about the farms because they're the farmers and the farmers form the bedrock of every community. And that's where your food comes from. But like, that doesn't, you know, someone. For reference listeners, all this talk of agromancers and major charge and such. For those of you who don't know, an agromancer, for them to get a major charge, they need to sacrifice something that they love that they've raised from birth. Now, typically this is a calf that you have raised from birth, but as the setup for this one shot, it's your own flesh and blood child. It would be funny if Trevor's dad had like a dog that he was just like, I don't think I'd love this kill my dog son enough. Kill my dog. The thing is though, you can only get, so as an agromancer, you can only get a major so we're not talking like small time juju like a major charge is something really significant um you can only get a major charge if you sacrifice your own child okay so, so like it was not, a major major charge is only own yeah. child okay it's only own child confused. but there are other ways to get major charges like in typical third edition fashion like i think one is like make a farm that feeds a million people like you know you do something or uh create a completely new cultivar that uh that you like either from engineering or from traditional cultivation like create a completely new cultivar that be, like takes the world by storm or something it's funny because like i read the agromancer entry i'm like oh that's really cool like you know make a character who's like so obsessed with farming creates like a a new kind of tomato or something that's like real becomes really crucial to the food economy but like you know that's that's not something that resonates with everyone. It's a weird like, goal for a tabletop campaign. Yeah, yeah. That just makes me want to run like a like a GMO <laughs> scientist who also happens you to be an agromancer and has you his own farm. Actually, one really interesting concept you could do for an agro. One of my weird personal obsessions is like bringing back the American chestnut, which is like this almost extinct tree that all that used to like blanket the East Coast. And some GMO scientists in real life are like trying to genetically engineer a chestnut that can that can survive. So like that's there's people that really care about that shit. Identity Monsanto employee. <laughs> oh, so actually this is a real life thing that happened to me. One time I was chatting with um like a like a a tree nerd online who's specifically really into chestnuts and like the idea of cultivating chestnuts as a food source, like as an agricultural food source. And so I tagged this group of people that are trying to like genetically modify American chestnuts so that they can come back. And then this, this person who I was originally tweeting, like DM'd me like really angrily. And apparently they had some like longstanding beef with the GMO scientists who are working on the American chest. And they're like, don't tag them in my mentions. They'll like come at me and like start spitting this weird propaganda on my feed and like personally attacking me. It was like the most bizarre thing that I had accidentally stepped into. Drama in the chestnut community. That's amazing. So yeah. Um, Those chestnut nuts. (laughs) Well, that makes me think of, um, what you're saying about bringing things back. It makes me think of, uh, how I think it was it Thomas Edison got really into like eating um, 
like um, edible plants that were considered they used to be grown by Native Americans before like um, Columbus and all that. They were like part of the agricultural package, but then yeah. they were just ignored by settlers and treated as weeds. Yeah. Like that, bringing back any of that, they called like terrible names. I don't know, like sump weed or something like just terrible, like I mean, names that don't do, sound appealing, yeah, but they're to totally edible. And like there's some native foods that are like slowly coming back into consciousness that have kind of kind of been like low lying the whole time like pawpaws down south is like a a fruit like an edible fruit that grows well down south that like natives and like basically mountain people eat um that's like now starting to slowly come back into consciousness that could be a really cool goal for an agromancer is to like re- uh, resurrect like a dead food like that that uh used to be widely eaten but like isn't anymore or isn't cultivated. Well, I ranted about this last episode about how in Australia there was like this so many, so much flora that was eaten, like fruits and things that when European settlers arrived, everyone was just like, yeah. nah, fuck, we're going to import shit from Europe and just ignore <laughs> all this stuff. But then but the problem is that people, now people are starting to eat it, mm. but it's just hipsters yeah. and oh, they're just no. gentrifying it. And it's like, no, not yeah. like that. It do be like that though. And yeah, and like one reason that this plan that my player character came up with worked is that he he pitched it to the city council as like a form of agritourism, which is totally a, a thing that real people in like the New England area do. Like New England is like the one part of the country where the number of farmers is increasing instead of decreasing. And like part of that is because of the rise of like zero waste farming and like agritourism and like all of these weird sort of uh organic back to land movement so like it's if if you're the kind of person that's like really into michael Pollan, highly recommend my one shot <laughs> but like yeah i really I, I do like the idea of like a, a anonami's one shot having the great climax at the end be like approaching the city council yeah. and saying like we should do this and advocating it and then more i don't know what you call it but when they all the city council guys stand behind like sit behind the desk and look at you as you stand behind the microphone and give your spiel and that to be the climax i yeah. mean that's that's kind of cool that's sort game, of under they, uh, to they me. did it by uh joe seduced uh alexis's mom <laughs> into doing it which i really loved uh god it was great like we originally alexis doesn't have like dad and like they made up a dad uh named brad and he's like really into cars and like kind of uh a man candy kind of a character like they they built up like this whole relationship between alexis uh and their mom which was just really wonderful it it made some really great moments for role play like it's a it's a great if you like a game that's very much like about an ensemble cast and like how they interact like i think runoff is a lot of fun and like some of it's the most me game of the three in a way because it's based on my own experiences growing up. It's based on the style of role play I like that's very character centered, like very interpersonal centered. Like it's definitely influenced by my love of Golden Sky Stories, a game where you just literally solve people's interpersonal problems. And like there's definitely like weird unknown army stuff going on in this game, but like it it has an almost like sitcom kind of ambiance to it that's about the the dynamic between these weirdos and like why they care about this town and why they care about their friend who's going for this even as the scary stuff about human sacrifice is going on in the background <laughs> so torm 
How did things go when you ran this? Yeah, they did not go like that in his game from what I've heard. Well, the, the thing is, like, when I ran it, okay, I had one person who had experience with Unknown Armies and everyone else was relatively new. I think that they didn't connect, as you were saying, with um, that whole, like, we have to save the farm mentality. And they their logic was to just, like, leave. And I wasn't going to tell them no. Um, so it ended up being a very different kind of game. I didn't think it went badly at all. It was just very, I just didn't get to use a lot of the stuff and I had to make stuff up on the, on the seat of my pants. And, but I know it, it made, their logic made sense to me at the time. I'm like, yeah, okay. If you're not going to, I think I made some errors in terms of, uh, at the early stages, I should have like got them to characters to commit to the setting a bit better. Um, and a lot of that was on me, but also that's useful because as you were saying, when you play tested it, it went quite well, but that's the thing with like when the designer of an adventure plays a game and it goes really well, that's often different from when someone who isn't the designer and isn't like when you write things down, I've, I've had this problem myself, like when I'm designing ventures or whatever, like there are unspoken assumptions that yeah, you have in your absolutely. head when you're writing it um, that you don't put wow. in there because you just don't think of it. And then if someone else uses it, they don't have those unspoken assumptions yeah, that's and go in a completely different that, direction. I mean, writers in general struggle with that. And I've struggled not writing modules doing that. Um and it was at, at first I was like, you know, feel I'm like, you know, I'm I'm kind of a sensitive gal at the best of days. But like whenever you hear something doesn't go how you want to, like that never makes you feel fantastic. But like after, you know, I'd sat with that for a little while, it was really helpful. Like it made me write, like you say, like I wrote down like some of the unspoken assumptions that I had brought into the game. Like, oh, like make sure you do the startup questions. Like here's some things that you should ask the players so they think about this and like oh like what if the players try to run away like here are some things to remind them of here's some stress checks that they would take because of these relationships that they have and like it ended up being like really helpful for writing the thing even though like uh it i guess it was a suboptimal in some ways it wasn't it wasn't a, it wasn't a dumpster <laughs> fire it wasn't terrible it, it, it was especially like when i was running it i felt that the the setup in particular with Trevor just bursting in being like, oh my God, my dad's trying to kill me. That was really fun. That's a really strong setup. And like what happened after like them just, I had to, my problem was I had to make stuff up. And so like they all went to meet the, the occult shop lady in the other city. Yeah. Amber. Yes. But I didn't know. I was like, ah, they can't just go to a shop. I have to make it more interesting. So for some reason I decided to put her, like she's at a um like a, a rave in the forest, but I've been it's because I'm used to going in Australia to like raves in the bush, and I'm like they probably have these in America, right? I'm just gonna say I've they do. I've never been to one, but I was also like deeply a nerd, so like uh I I don't know what the cool kids get up to. <laughs> Maybe. Hey, hey, I I was a nerd, but I was there. <laughs> I wasn't a cool kid. I was just at in the bush. Like it was surrounded by lights, <laughs> but it worked in a way because I was trying to figure out a way to like bring things that I wanted to bring up, like things that I couldn't do because they didn't go in the direction of what was written. I want them to have, I want them to fight the, uh, the clay, like the earth yeah, monsters, the but it ended up being made of, yes, the servitors. I wanted them to fight the servitor. So I, it ended up being a servitor made from like a parking lot, kind of like a gravel parking lot in the middle of the, 
of the the forest, which was also suboptimal, but I'm like, eh, it's good enough. And they fought and they ran away. And I'm like, all right, I guess you're going to run away to a new city, to a new occult underground. Can't do anything yeah, about it was that. Interesting I guess. Like when you told me about that, like I had to sit with it. first. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Even if you run away to another city, this problem doesn't go away. <laughs> like the. Yeah, but it goes away if you remove yourself from it and you're like, I don't yeah, care yeah. about that problem. Uh, and, like, one thing I say is, like, I sort of, like, flesh out, like, because it, the scenario is called run off. There are probably are some number of players who will just be like, oh, we'll just run away. And, and like, one of the first things I say, it might not be a big deal. Like, if they're just hiding out for a couple days, like, that doesn't really materially change anything about the adventure. You just sort of time skip or, like, apply one of the levers that pressure the characters. Uh, but then, like, if they decide, no, we're just going to leave permanently, then you start applying, like, uh, it's it's easy to forget about stress checks and things like that, it, but they're wonderful levers to pull on if if you need to in a character-driven game. So, like, one of the things... Yes, I, I should have done that like, better. That was I really feel... helpful for me because I'm like, oh, I can, like, give what i can give the i can put the layers in front of the gm lovers in front of the gm instead of expecting them to know so like one of the things i say is like hey trevor is an agromancer and his obsession is his farm and his noble passion is nurturing his community he probably wouldn't just run away maybe remind the player of that <laughs> but like that's the sort of thing you don't think of when you're gming if it's not written down for you you know like i wouldn't expect you to know that in any way it was the sort of thing that it, it makes sense and it, in retrospect it's like yeah i should have thought of that but that's the thing when you're writing a scenario you have to yeah. write it for like the lowest common yeah, denominator no, like, not... and assume like i'm, I'm... <laughs> This guy might miss yeah, this. Yeah, like, I, I have to write it for people who aren't really necessarily don't gravitate to this kind of story. Like, it's when you're writing, you're writing for everyone that you think might enjoy your your work. You're not just writing for the people who get it the minute they read it, you know? Well, that, yeah, that's that's the sort of thing about writing. It's like good writing, scenario writing, or any writing is taking very personal experiences and making them accessible to people who haven't had those very personal experiences. And so it's good that you bring in a, a scenario that's drawing on your own experiences. And it's also good that like you're like, okay, other people don't get this as much, so let's make it clear. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so were... no, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and it ended up being like really helpful, adding some things that I'm like kind of proud of that sort of give people useful feedback like oh like here's some stress check that you can give them and like if a bunch of people start taking stress checks then someone's gonna notice or a servitor is gonna notice and then that's gonna pull some of these other lovers for you it's like that whenever you're writing and you hit a problem and it's really annoying yeah. and you don't know what to do about it and you find a solution and then you're like actually the solution is better than what i did originally <laughs> yeah. I'm glad this problem yeah. emerged yeah. Yeah, no, How's writing coming on the second one then? Uh, how are those Maoists in the Swamp doing? I would say the rough draft is over half done. Like maybe even as much as three-fourths done. It's interesting because runoff I wrote very sequentially. Like, oh, like this is the first thing that could happen. And here's the other joint. And here's the other joint. And like, I just sort of wrote them one after the other. Whereas writing Firestarter, I've written like the startup phase. And then the startup phase determines what can happen in the end phase. And then I sort of have written through the middle um but like i'm now at sort of the last leg of like the actual module writing part which is writing out the different places that the players go between the startup and the ending it's interesting because like with firestarter it's possible theoretically for the players to never leave the starting location and 
uh, to do almost everything like within the confines of the swamp, except for like one or two minor things. So like a lot of it is like, oh, here's some places the players might go. Here's some interesting things that can happen. A lot of the the real fun part about Firestarter and sort of like when you're writing something kind of goes through phases where different layers sort of pop out as you're digging through the substrate that sort of clarify like what kind of story you're telling and sort of like naturally emerge like this this sort of mirroring between these these modern day revolutionaries the deserters during the confederate era and like how these these sort of working class people in the modern day kind of mirror their counterparts during the civil war and it was really fun like it's been fun like integrating those two stories together and and sort of like making the symbolism like kind of integrated i kind of went off on a tangent no worries no, no, we, we do we do, this is part of the show tangents are what yeah. it's all about but like i i created roughly like four like big bullet points and i'm i'm working on three out of four of i'm i'm well on my way to finishing that one so like it, it's it's well on its way to having the rough draft done i'm very excited to run it to see what happens it might be utter chaos but uh i'm i'm here for it <laughs> It's also so far much longer than runoff, but you wouldn't necessarily need all of the stuff that's written here. That's the power of editing. You don't necessarily need it yes, all, that's but true. write it all out first and see what you don't need afterwards. If I had to write too much and exactly. have to cut it, then writing too little and then everyone's yeah. just entirely confused. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I think on that note, we're going to take a caller. Uh, we'll be back in a moment here, listeners, uh, continuing our interview and just talking about one-shots in general. Stay tuned. Something's not right. Oh, God. I, I, I live on the top floor of an, com- uh, 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 an apartment complex in... Well, you, you don't need to know. The elevator is this little box from the 70s it has a weird rustic smell of dried garlic and bile the insides are with this old plush old carpet I swear I could hear I could hear something breathing and there was a heartbeat when I was when I was last in there I don't want to get in there anymore the stairs are gone. I haven't seen my cat for about three days now. I'm starving. I haven't been able to get out or go to work or anything for three days. And I can't reach anyone. Uh, there's no signal anymore. The, the, the phones are out. The only thing I can hear on the phones when I try and call something is just... It doesn't matter. It feels, it feels like I'm being digested. I'm so fucking scared. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know what to do. And welcome back, ladies and germs. We are here to talk about one shots. Um, I'm thinking. We can discuss how one shots used to be used to work back in second edition and how things are different now. I don't think there's that edition. much difference. Um, I think there is because 
Anonami's in its second edition form was famous for one shots. And one of the thing, one of the reasons I'm really excited about Catherine's project is that um, the way that third edition is designed, it is seems less suited for one shots, but that might not necessarily, that's not necessarily true at all. What we've got, what's been released so far, hasn't really been one shots. It's more been like mini campaigns things. So I'm wanting to talk about like how we can do one shots using third edition rules and how it differs from what it used to be and ideas of what other kinds of one shots. So the big thing about Anonymous third edition that kind of pushes away from one shots is the way the objective system works. I think that you can still pretty easily do a third edition game, especially one shot without objectives whatsoever. Now, this is how Marie in three parts, the um, Unknown Army's third edition quick start works. They just don't include the objective rules at all. And honestly, I think the objective rules aren't really intrinsic to Unknown Armies as a game, even third edition. Um, it's more of a way to sort of cludge direction into the game because there's been a lot of criticism at the first two editions for a feeling that it lacked that, but you could still pretty easily do a UA3 game without the objective system at all if there's a strong enough direction there coming from some other source. So, like, if the, not an objective, but the the cabal is somehow um, cohesive enough yeah. in there. Like, say you're doing yeah. a new Inquisition game, then you have missions that the GM can give you. Now, it shifts three, third edition a bit more towards the traditional scenario-driven way of running a campaign, as opposed to third edition, which is designed much more with a sandbox, player-driven approach in mind. But for something as enclosed as a one-shot, that sort of strategy is useful. Um, Kate, are you using objectives at all in your one-shots that you got coming out here? So, um, like Marie in three parts, all of the objectives are pre-populated on the character sheets. So the the objective, there's no objective setting phase. You just, I just have preset the objective and uh, created pre-generated characters that sort of mold with that that being said if you compare my one shots with marie in three parts um like sort of these powered by apocalypse type games or even like the um the objective phase itself i do bake in what i call the startup phase and the startup phase is basically after you've read your pre-generated character and the objective you sort of there's sort of a set of questions that you have to answer together and that sort of gives it like a little bit of the sauce that's in the objective setting phase without having like the full on objective setting phase. And I call that section like getting into character. And there's like a series of bullet points that, that gives the GM directions to sort of walk the players through like, this is the world. And like, here's what are your relationships with each other and stuff. Like I really that. like that way of doing things. Um, it does seem to me to be, like a story game influence, which is already in third edition. You can clearly see the story game influence on the way the objective system and the like, um, cabal formation works. The whole session zero is very story gamey. And having those questions at the start reminds me a lot of like how story games run. And I like doing, I yeah. like that. It's, it makes a lot of sense. Um, 
Another strategy that I haven't seen any one-shots do this, but I think it's an interesting idea, is that you have a preset objective, and it's at a certain percentage at the start of the one-shot, sort of doing an immediate res style thing, where over the course of the one-shot, they can up the, you know, accomplished objectives to get the um, rating up, and... Ideally, they hit 100. Maybe it's designed so they can't even hit 100 at all. But at that end of the one shot, you got to roll those dice and take the risk, depending on how far you've gone, of are we going to be able to complete our objective here? That's really interesting. Um, I will admit that when I, although I very strictly adhere to the part of the objective setting phase that's like the pregame part, once I'm actually GMing an Unknown Armies campaign, tend not to be super great about rolling for objective points um Stuart pate who i'm in a game with is much better about that and our gm does it as well uh and i do occasionally do it but like for a mini campaign like i i sometimes feel like in a mini campaign i want everything to happen on screen that's that's important enough to move the story forward but yeah i think that's a really cool idea I'd be interested to read a module like that and see how it would. I ran like. into that issue myself when I was running my first third edition campaign, where players had trouble coming up with objectives and actually, you know, working towards them. They were just kind of drifting around until waiting for shit to happen to them. And I think part of that's just certain players are more need more direction than others do. In in my game with Max, we don't really have that problem. Playing for three years, and by the time you've been playing a game for three years, you've accrued so much baggage that your players you always have something to do. Um, so in that game, we're always coming up with new objectives. But like I've also played games where the players kind of need to be coached a little bit more. Um, interestingly, when I did my when I started my mini campaign, the players chose an antagonist to be their objective, like to defeat someone, which like I think can be good if you're starting a game for the first time. That's like what less one should I think advice. the problem <laughs> that I ran into with my first campaign was that even though the game's instructions tell you to come up with an objective before everything else, my players are totally stumped and we're like, oh, okay, no, we can do that later. And let's just focus on character building now. And as I do, a result, I do understand why Greg Stoltz is like you yeah. must do the objective yes. first because if there is a clear objective, it does help the entire process. Exactly, they got super interested yeah, in all the characters, does. and then and all the elements they had in the corkboard, and had very little idea of how to actually work towards their goal. Yeah, because definitely in my game, like once we decided. I was like, okay, the game's going to be about the T. Like, think about what kind of objective you want to have that has to do with the T. And then, like, that, once they had an objective, that built out, like, what everyone wanted to play. Because, um, of course, now we all want our characters to have something to do with transit and uh, Boston. So, like, that sort of informed all the decisions that they made. I remember when I was, like, running this game for people who didn't know about, like, Anonami's and we're setting up the objective and I was explaining like the objective could be like literally anything and uh, this one woman who's playing she was like she said like okay so we could just like resurrect Prince and then she sort of like she was trying to remember a name and I just said yeah you can resurrect Prince if you want and then she looked at me and they looked at me and they're like oh we're gonna resurrect Prince and I'm like alright the whole campaign it was them trying to resurrect 
prince and it was glorious that's that's very good yeah I, I i usually bring like a theme like i give the players a few choices for like a broad theme and then i i then i because you know you want to be interested in what you're you're making a game about too and then after that i sort of let them funnel it down to something more specific yeah yeah um and the important thing with ua games is initial scope and setting that and aligning expectations on that and one shots are very good at that and right that when writing and designing right. a one shot that's something that you really need to focus on in my opinion is making sure that the scope of everything is well conveyed small yeah. like um yeah something i like about jailbreak the one from and um Fly to Heaven, both by Greg Stolze and One Shots, the original book, is that they're essentially bottle episodes and that yes. jailbreak, you have this huge storm going on that's preventing you from going outside and Fly to Heaven, you're literally on a plane. So going outside, leaving the situation is pretty difficult in both cases. And I think for a one shot, you kind of want to have... One, that level of, okay, what's the concrete material reason we're all staying in this situation? Which is something that you ran into a bit with um, runoff, it sounds like, and you're working to improve that aspect while also having character motivation in such a way that they're not just forced to stay here, but encouraged to actually engage with the situation at hand. It's it's sneaky right. with like fly to heaven because the motivation is you're on the plane. Yeah. 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 And like with runoff, like there's definitely a tension there, even in the original where like there's the I guess we'd call it sort of the push and the pull, where like what's pushing on the players is the servitors and, and potentially the police officers, if they try to leave, are sort of going to follow them. But like that's not I don't really want my one shot to be structured like a yeah. prison. No, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, like, you also want the pull of like these are why the character, these are their their strong personalities and why they care about the subjective. Especially because, like, as a as a GM, whether I'm writing a one shot or a longer campaign, all of my stories, for better or worse, tend to be like very character driven. Um, and if I have players who don't care about the characters, like I've at square one, I have already failed <laughs> but, um, like the old tagline used to is like you did it so you have to create a situation where yeah. the characters want to do something so and then it goes from there so speaking right. as both a player and a gm for this game something i love about unknown armies all editions is that the way the game's mechanics are set up and the way that the character sheets are set up is that more so than any other role-playing game i've ever played I can get a great sense of who a character is as a human being, not just their abilities, but like as a full-fledged person just by looking at their stat blocks. Yeah, no, that is something I absolutely adore about Unknown Armies 3rd um, Edition. Like, you can... There's... I actually wrote an article that Alex ended up publishing. Uh, I'll put the link in the discord if you we can put it in the uh, description to the uh, podcast episode yeah i i literally wrote an article that's a love letter to the third edition character sheet uh and like i basically yeah i talk about that like 
there's these three pieces in a character sheet and they're all important. Your shock gauges say tell a story about like what bad things your character has or hasn't experienced and then your identities tell a story about what's important to them and how they define themselves and then your passions tell a story about like what their obsessions are what's what's meaningful to them what they're afraid of and the thing i really love about the passions in unknown armies is that like in a game that's based on percentile rolling which is a very randomized kind of role those passions really matter. Yeah, they're all tied in, like if, tied into the game on a fundamental yeah, level. You you want those rerolls yeah. real bad, and so like that really encourages you to think about what those mean to them. And I I just think that's so ah uh, it's it's so cool. I really love it. And like uh, one thing I talk a little bit about is like how I love how you can have a character who has like say really low violence score in their shock gauge and like that says something about them as a human being that they're not like hardened to doing violence but that same character can also say have an upset have a identity that's based on being like a jujitsu master and so then you can say they're good at struggle but their their struggle comes from their discipline with this martial art and not from like actually punching other human beings and like that says something about who they are i, I really like and- that no, it's, it's really cool because like it's it's the the base in your heart what you really are and the barriers you build in your identity within the world that's why i like like any kind of identity that protects one of the gauges because it's it's what you've yeah. made yeah. yeah um by the way if you do pick up one of my one shots or any other unknown armies game and you're building a character like abilities that protect shock identities that protect shock ages are very very valuable and you don't realize that until you played the game yeah. a couple times that having those protective identities is like really one it's really it, good it, does, it doesn't <laughs> seem like that uh, amazing when you're building the characters like this is not useful yeah. but in play that's real useful yeah and like one time i was running my midi campaign playing a cleomancer that we ported to third and i had a viaturge come to him and uh use they they have an ability that like they can course you into getting into their car and i had forgotten that i had uh helped him build his character and i've been like oh like your character really identifies with his job as as a uh, a freedom trail guide so like oh maybe that protects you against uh, i think it was self or it was isolation actually yeah it was isolation and so like he's like oh i have a protective identity and like this viaturge just couldn't do it and like that's like their whole thing and like it was a, became like a really wonderful way where like oh do you want a tour that's that's all i care about <laughs> i'm not afraid of you at all <laughs> i just love history and my friends i know through history <laughs> the other thing i love about character sheet is the way that obsession um as just a stat as an integral part of the game forces players to come up with motivations for their characters i have run so many tabletop campaigns where all the player characters felt like, you know, they were engaged and involved in what's going on, but they didn't seem deeply motivated on a character level to stick with whatever dangerous situation they're in. And obsession gives right. a great reason for that, right. that constantly comes and back to mechanics. Isn't there not a space for obsession on the most used character sheet? Yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> There's the star that goes. 
There's the star that goes with your identity that that marks which one is your obsession identity. But yes, there's no actual blank ah. for your obsession, which is I like I actually say in this article like that's the one weakness of the third edition character sheet that should have been right underneath your current objective. And that's usually where I put it. We've got a sense for what your experience is like running one shots. Okay. Um, Torm, what about yours? Like, have you come up with any custom one shots for UA? Have you run any of them? You don't have to be any that you've even written just over the years. No, most of the, most of what I've done has been like campaign form. I did re I did run, um, Bill and three parts once. And that's, that's kind of a one shot though. It ended up taking, it's almost a sessions. campaign introduction too. Yeah, it is a campaign introduction. And I, I like, I haven't actually read Marie in three parts yet. So I don't know what's going on with that, but I remember I really, I really liked Bill and three parts. Um, even though it is flawed in some ways. And that is one thing that I do kind of dislike about third edition in some ways is that I do like that the game is just honest and is like, all right, you are already tuned into the underground. You're already weirdos. We're, we're going off from there. But I do miss those one shots that are sort of acting as introductions to all this crazy shit that rather than just yeah. players reading through the book, it's like, this sounds really cool, but we all know players. We know that a lot of times they aren't even going to bother to read through it. I did like in second edition... Like it's, there's a reason why that the second edition book won awards because it is fun to read like the local section and then the global section and the cosmic section and it, it feels like you're slowly like getting into this conspiracy and learning what's going on and you don't get that as much in third edition even though there are good reasons why they haven't done that way in third edition I I kind of miss that feeling of like all right I've 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 read through the local section now let's go up to the next level it it was fun. Oh, one thing that sort of organically happened in my mini game about the MBTA is that, uh, you know, we built out our trigger events as you do in the objective setting phase. And then their trigger event was pretty close to the start of the be the beginning of the game. So what, what sort of just organically happened is like, at first I was just going to like have them play out a little bit of their trigger event and then just cut forward. But like it ended up being like a good starting point for the game. And so, like, we just played out the game from their trigger event. Like, we just role-played the whole thing out. And, like, that's something, if you kind of miss the, the the weirdos get plopped into the middle of this thing and don't quite know what's going on, like, you can sort of massage that into it a little bit by playing from the trigger event. And I like the idea forward. of playing through uh, a shared trigger event. That sounds pretty fun. It's just a lot more engaging than reading through the core book and being like, oh, this seems cool, and then kind of obliquely describing what it is. It feels like a much more integral part of your character because it's something that all yeah. the players have shared. And the, and the, the whole idea of having right. like the, yeah. the, the trigger event, like that's not unique to Anunnamis because people do that in like Delta Green as well. Like you, when you're making your character, you introduce like what introduced you to the unnatural. Where did you learn about it? And it's fun. It's a fun like exercise to do because people come up with craziness. But yeah, I like the idea of starting with the trigger event and just running from there. Depending on how divergent your characters are, it can be kind. It can be kind of hard yeah. to come up with a shared trigger event for everyone, though. Like if you're dealing with a. Um, Full Minuturge and a Avatar of the Mother and a Dipsomancer, then coming up with something that is bringing all together, like, hey, here's how all of us learned about all this shit all at once within close proximity. That can be kind of tricky. Yeah. So there's a couple things you can try. Um, you could 
role play each trigger event with the player and then cut forward. Yeah. That's one way you can kind of try and have your cake eat it too. One thing I will also say is in a lot of the games I've been in, um, a lot of people... So, like, with avatars, just naturally you can become an unconscious yeah. avatar. So, like, that's very easy to gloss. Um, and then you can... It's kind of a fun moment later on if your character finds out that they're channeling magic power. Um, with adepts... A lot of times, like, when I've seen people play Adepts, I don't want to say that they don't think of what they do as magic. Because, like, there's some level on which an ad- which every Adept understands that what they're doing is supernatural. But the way that their supernatural feels normal to them, in a way that their trigger event usually doesn't. Does, does that make sense? You mean. I mean, <laughs> this is something that the earlier books emphasized a bit more than 3rd edition, but an Adept... Their school is half spells and such, but a huge part of it is their weird fucking ideology. Why they believe that, yes, of course it makes sense that me constantly drinking all the time gives me the ability to influence the world in extremely direct ways. And it's interesting because... In the book, I think in even in third edition, it says, oh, like you usually learn adept magic from another yeah. adept or you learn from a demon. And like, I always forget that. Like most adepts that I encounter as characters, like they they come into their magic on their own of their weird approach to reality. I forget if third like, edition has this, but I remember that second edition for adepts, there was a minimum number of notches you're supposed to have in each of your shot gauges to be able to oh, be in a depth. I don't think that's in Or it's there. something I liked a lot. Which is because right. that's something they emphasize there is that especially if you have like a magical teacher, they essentially are breaking down your entire worldview and building it back up again from scratch as they're teaching you how to do magic. Yeah, see see I think of adepts as coming broken. Yeah. <laughs> like like, these are people who, like, it just makes sense to them that, like, of course, like, the power of a gun is is in people's psychic relationship to it as, as a symbol of power. Obviously, the real power in a gun isn't shooting it at people. What, one idea <laughs> I've just had is I'm looking at the, like, the, thinking about the way, like, character generation happens in different stages, right? And I'm thinking, what if you had, like, character generation up to a point, and so, say, people had, like, one or two identities, and they had worked out their passions, but they have no obsession, and they have not no third or second identity. And then, but in between the character generation part, you do a shared unnatural um, encounter scene where everyone encounters. Yeah. And then after that, you're like, okay, based on that experience you all had together, where did you go from that? I'm picturing something kind of like Fiasco, because yeah, with Fiasco, when it's a yeah. player's turn, they choose who else is involved in the given scene that they're setting up. So I'm imagining that a player establishes, hey, here's my trigger event. Torpson, you're going to be my crazy um, dipsomancer um, mentor. And you, Kate, you're going to be my brother who has just discovered that all this crazy shit I'm getting into. You could, like, spread like the character generation phase by making every decision a scene like you could make session zero like three or four sessions just by like going into absolutely 
I think that the trigger event is the most role part of it, though, if you if you do choose to go that route. But I think that's like I honestly think that's that's a great idea. Like you could totally set up your session zero like that if you want to get a bit more like put a little more investment juice into the uh, into the. I also like event. just the idea of playing younger versions of the characters before the campaign starts. Um, that's always fun, like that time yeah. jump, and it's like you're like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, innocent, and encounter the supernatural, and then it cuts to several years later, oh. and you're like a fucking dipsomancer or or an avatar or whatever you are. That's also a great way to establish relationships early yeah, on. It's it's a really good way to yeah, and like one thing that is is in my one shots, the relationship building phase becomes it creates investment, and yeah, I think that's a great way to build relationships with the characters as well. Um, this sort of reminds me of something that my GM did in our long game where his, his main antag is a Cleomancer and our trigger event in that game, which started in Tui. So we just played, you know, the whole thing from the beginning is a Cleomancer comes into a bar. Uh, there's an, there's an explosion that happens. We don't know exactly what, and we find someone's dead body uh, and they, they've been stabbed. And we don't, and like, because of the Cleomancer's power, we sort of have her walk in and then it cuts to us seeing the scene and we don't know what's happened in the interim. And then like two years later, Max has us role play out the night that the Cleomancer arrived when we finally remember what's happened. Well, that's great. And so we're, ro- we're role playing earlier versions of ourselves and like the the thing that was really wonderful about this is that one of our characters had died in the intervening two years and been replaced by the person playing a new character so in this flashback they're playing their now deceased pc gosh it was it was like a really wonderful like session and like a great moment where like you have these characters suddenly remembering something and they're also remembering this person who is now no longer in their life that represents like a traumatic event in the campaign uh it was great it was a great session props to max <laughs> that explosion brings up an interesting point too for one shots but also campaigns but one shots especially is you want to have that great hook moment which I like that you have for runoff, which is just your friend kicks open the door and is like, my dad just tried to kill me in some weird binding of Isaac shit. Yeah. Help. I like that. Yeah. I also love the fact that they're like gaming when he bursts in. It's yeah. a good meta moment. <laughs> just yes. Kicking it's, the door in on your D&D group to tell them that your dad just tried to kill you. That is a great cold open. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's based on a real place in my hometown that I sort of connected with going going back to my hometown and i i really love it as like a set piece because it it is a place where people really bond uh in a real way but it's to have this sort of weird world that sort of we play pretend and kind of invade their world is is, was a lot of fun to set up that's also uh having that killer opening is really important for campaigns too like as a way to get player engagement into this weird fucking world they're entering Something, the way I opened my first UA game, I'm still quite proud of, which is all the players' characters wake up in the back of a Honda Civic, bound and gagged, with a man in a balacava pointing a gun at them while his wife is behind the wheel, also wearing a balacava. They both have Mickey Mouse tattoos. The man with the gun t- 
tosses a Ziploc baggie into their laps, which upon further inspection contains one testicle from each of the player characters. Jesus Christ. That's a lot. That's some Coen Brothers shit right there. <laughs> That's what people always say. Cold open is important. Like pushing as the GM to push characters to already be in the situation. Like I remember listening to a discussion about um, problems of Call of Cthulhu when the GMs would have like some mystery, but they it wouldn't be like for example, you like you want them to go to Antarctica to investigate like the the lost fucking Elder Thing city or whatever. Um, and the idea that like if you start them off like as like academics or whatever they are in the hometown and like give them the clues. You can't actually guarantee that they're going to like follow them or actually want to go to Antarctica. So the way to go around that is just to like start the campaign is like you're on the plane to Antarctica and this is what you're doing and yep. that's the way to go. Like start in media res is good. Yeah, uh, man, I love the buildup of like a of a campaign that goes from like a slow burn up to a climax. Though I have a I have a friend who basically says like if you bring players into a scenario, especially in a campaign, and like there's a clear plot hook, and they just sort of decide, no, I don't care. Uh, this is maybe like a little more extreme than I would go in a one shot, but like basically they say like you know sit down with your players and be like, hey, let's play something else because you clearly aren't feeling this. Like if 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 you present a hook to a player and like they just don't have any interest like maybe this isn't a game that they can enjoy uh and like there's something about that that i i sort of like in a way that like helps you make peace with the idea that like you can't always make a game that your players are gonna love and it's it you you can't always feel totally responsible for their good time in a way i don't know yeah no that's definitely fair um i think there uh, there's a few ways to handle that problem one is just pulling back and going to the meta level and just being like, hey, here's what the campaign that I'd like yeah. to run is about. Are you into this? They can be yes or no. Because sometimes when you're presenting a hook to your players that you think this is super fucking obvious, why aren't they going yeah, to this? It's yeah, not because of lack not. of interest. It's <laughs> yeah. they just didn't know it was a hook. Um, yeah, no, that can absolutely happen. Again, it's with the unspoken assumptions that you might not know that are, are not obvious to the players because they're obvious to you because you came up with it, you wrote it. With UA... That can be kind of tricky, too, especially because of all the weird rumors that are floating around at all times that they just right. might think, like, oh, this is another one of those weird rumors where it's like, no, this is an adventure hook. Please grab onto it. Oh, that's one thing that's nice, like writing a one shot uh, for third edition is I can just literally objective on the character. Sheet. Yeah, you have a much tighter control over yeah. what players are and their characters are going to have as their motivations that keep them invested in what's going on. One of the advantages of, like, Anonami's as a setting is that you can have characters who are, like, objectively wrong, but still effective. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yes, I love that. I think about, like, if you're running a game and you're playing, like, the Cecilites, so you're viewing every unnatural event through the lens of, like, a, a weird mystical form of Catholicism, like, they're wrong about how the universe works, but that they're still effective and they still get things done and they still complete objectives. And you can do that in many different ways. Something that I miss from the second edition, well, I'm talking about it a lot this episode. I do prefer, for reference listeners, I do prefer third edition overall. But with one shots especially, second edition was a bit more designed with that in mind. Second edition had some of those one shots that were designed 
as campaign introductions for a more generic set of characters. Maybe not generic is the best term, but all of the third edition one-shots and the campaign starter packs, too, have a list of characters pre-made. And those are fun, and there's a lot of cool characters in there. But personally speaking, and speaking for a lot of my players, they love coming up with their own character. So having a having some one-shots that can be run for multiple character types rather than being designed for specific player characters that have always been made by the GM that either works as an introduction to the setting in the game or is just something that you can insert into the middle of the campaign when you're feeling lazy and don't have time to write up something yourself. Something that's missed, the type of stuff that was in Weep. And I get that that's very hard in third edition mechanically for a number of reasons. It's very difficult to write something like that, considering how the identity system works compared to a game like Call of Cthulhu, which has a pre-listed set of skills. You know what players are going to be potentially bringing to the table much more than with Unknown Army's third edition or even second edition to a lesser degree. Yeah, David uh, Winterbottom uh, does Unknown Army's one-shots, and he has something where he'll, like, cut out identities and he'll like each player picks too that's and cool he was yeah he was interested in playtesting my game and he actually asked me if that would be possible and uh this isn't like a third edition problem this is like a, this is a kate cargill problem i cannot write adventures that are agnostic on on character um at least not for unknown armies definitely or any other like kind of sandboxy ish game because when I, whether it's a campaign or a one shot, my stories are like the, the way I come up with the plot is by taking the threads of the character backstories and sort of braiding them together. And uh, if you don't know anything about your, your characters, there's nothing to braid. And so then I, I'm not able to work with anything usually, unless it becomes a story all about the NPCs. And I think that's less fun. It depends. So it can be like, well, as you say, like, in the way you write scenarios, it's very character driven. Some people who write scenarios are very plot driven. That's fine. I'm glad right. both both should exist. And if you're out there and you write really plot heavy adventures, you should also put them on the stratosphere so we get all the different types. Also, I'm jealous of you. And can you please? I I wish I could. Do that. <laughs> um, I think <laughs> I this really is struggle. <laughs> I think this is partially too just the other side of the coin of. We talked about how much we love that so much of UA's mechanics are dedicated to character as opposed to other role-playing games where what's on your character sheet is much more about what your character can physically do in the game world, what their abilities are, what their skills are, can they shoot fireballs, that type of thing. The other side of that means when you're writing UA scenarios, all the mechanics are tied in with the character in a very integral way. As opposed to like Dungeons and Dragons, where you don't need to worry about the character of the player that the players are running so much. You don't need to worry about them as human beings when coming up with challenges and engaging obstacles for them. It's just, all right, what spells is this wizard going to have? How many hit dice is the fighter going to have? Easier to think of things is system agnostically when character is a much smaller part of the system. That, that just makes right. me want to play like a D&D game which is using 
the UA rules, so you'll play. That exists, actually. <laughs> we talked about that. No, there's rules for that. There's a second edition hack that oh, ages, ports yeah. the system. Yeah. yeah, unknown ages that ports the magic system to a standard fantasy setting. I like the so. idea of like playing like a like what is ostensibly like a, a standard dungeon crawling group, but everyone is just weird obsessives with passions and stuff and playing through the like the human side of things while also being in this horrible dungeon. That would so be So a fun angle to that could be uh, that eventually they find the seam in the dungeon and then they walk into the modern day and find out it was just another space the whole time. There are people have talked about doing that. As like a GM and a module writer, one of my favorite so pole is the stress gauges too and that's very hard if you don't have a character yeah (laughs) that's go ahead sir yeah a lot of the a lot of the things are like oh like if this character has this conversation like here's what rank stress check it will be and like how they might react and like yeah it's hard to do that when you don't have a character (laughs) that is something that i like about ua a lot running as a gm is that the self-gauge gives great incentive for players to stay in character. Oh, I love the self-gauge. It's like the hidden it's the hidden weapon of Unknown Army's third edition. Yeah, it's, at times it feels almost like, a, okay, this is my GM stick that I beat you yeah. with when I don't think you're acting in yeah, character you enough. Yeah, be careful with it, but... <laughs> I try to do carrot before I do stick. I'm like, oh, like, noble passion, like, maybe that changes how you're entering. Oh, it doesn't? Okay, now I'm, now, uh, rank seven stress check. <laughs> Roll yeah. If, if, yeah. if they want, if they want to take the stress check, that's fine. Yeah, you that's can. your choice. Yeah. That's a human choice. Like if you want to go against your your own beliefs and your own self, that's what people do all the time. So fine, go ahead. A motto I'm fond of is set up fences, not walls. Walls yeah. they can't get past by. Hopping a fence is kind of a pain, but if they want to do it, then yeah, go that's ahead. A good motto. I like that a lot. You can, you can also put barbed wire on that fence. It's still a fence. Yes. And that's a group, like, in something like a Call of Cthulhu one-shot, you should have player character motivations in there, but they don't tie into the mechanics as closely as they do with Unknown Armies. So they... In Unknown Armies, those same mechanics are a great way to set up those fences around a one-shot, like you mentioned doing, Kate. Yeah. And actually, one of the great realizations that David gave me going back and editing my one shot is like if the players this i don't think this happened in your game but like if the players decide if trevor decides he wants to kill his father when he comes to look for him to to sacrifice him that i was like looking through the book you know just kind of casually and like killing someone you love is like a rank 10 self-check it's a nasty one uh and like even if you just watch someone else kill someone you love that's a rank nine helplessness check. Like, those are, like, nasty checks you don't want to deal with. But you can if you choose to. You can if you choose to. If you want to eat that stress check uh, or and have a panic attack, you can choose to kill Tim, and it's not the worst choice you can make in that game. <laughs> um, honestly, I think that we covered things pretty well here. Is there anything else from on the topic of one-shots that you guys want to bring up? So one thing that is really interesting is so i have read through maria in three parts and there's a lot in that scenario i really like uh and there's some things that i feel it gets a little muddied with one thing we did in in my group that was really fun is um i took i guest gm'd my uh my fiance's game for a session and what i actually did 
is I sort of did this mashup of Maria and Bill where I took my player character and she discovered a ritual that split her into three parts. Uh, one was like an adept, one was an avatar, and one was like a normal person like in Bill. And then it had the ambient psychic effects that each part of Maria has in Maria in three parts. And it became like this really amazing space to explore like the relationship dynamics of the various characters in, um, in Max's game. Uh, and like one of the really wonderful things about that was that rather than what I'd feared is that it would just become about me. Uh, cause I always joke that like every player character is like always focused on their own character and like being in the spotlight, uh, which is true of me as well. But like what it became wonderful about is it highlighted the other characters priorities. So like one of the splits was into, uh, a full, a fulmaturge. And my character could suddenly kill demons, which was like a major, one of the characters had accidentally summoned a bunch of demons and that was something that was sort of emotionally consuming him. And so suddenly my character could just kill them. And so like there was uh, this push and pull between these two characters as one of them has like this really strong relationship reading with my character. It's like, no, we have to put Lucy back together right away. And the other one's like, what if we just let her kill like, 10 15 demons before we put her back together <laughs> uh and like there's like these different dynamics that played out with like each each split version of lucy like the normal one was like really into like rebuilding the bar and that became like a bonding moment that sort of explored uh these characters relationships with one another it was, it was a really cool experience i really recommend tooling marie in that way and i might like do a uh if I keep writing these modules, I might dedicate space in one of the anthologies to like how you can retool Maria to, to sort of do that in different games. Cause I think it's a really fun idea. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, not just, you know, having pre-written one shots, but have stuff as a way to tool existing ones into your specific campaign in a way. I have ideas which are kind of in three parts esque. Um, the first one I call Big Other House, um, which is basically you're all in. It's like a, it's got it's it definitely has to be a one shot, but it's everyone is in like a Big Brother House situation, but everyone is the same person, but they've taken different paths in life and ended up as different people, and, I love and this. they have to no, choose great. like <laughs> they have to go through a series of challenges to choose which one which version of themselves is the one to be real. That's what happens after you die. There is a, a manga. It's translated into English as after nightmare. I forget what the, the original Japanese title is, but uh, it's not that, but it's, it sort of deals with adjacent themes that it's, it's, it's a good read. Recommend. It's also, it's also going to fuck you up. Like in a self check is like, because yeah. personally, for example, if you're si- if you're in a in a place where you're competing with different versions of yourself, but you can see a different version of yourself, which is like that is that version of myself is objectively better than me. I I want to survive, yeah. but maybe I'd rather they win instead. God damn it's it it's it could be fun. Okay, do you have any advice for anyone? looking to write their own one-shots for this game. Um, I guess I would say my biggest advice is use 
stress checks. It's very easy to forget to use them when you're GMing, but they're a really good way to force the characters to think about each other and to think about the world. Um, and my other big advice is like when you're writing an unknown armies, you really want to appeal to the kinds of things that are running through people's minds in the real world uh, and how they interface with real life weirdness that we see. So uh, when I was putting together Motown Showdown, like I was very influenced by my real life friends who were joining uh, New Urbanist Means for Transit Oriented Teens and who are like really interested in the fate of cities. And it's uh, if you can find something that's kind of weird and niche, but also immediately calls to people as, as being part of their their lived experience, like to me, that's the third edition sweet spot is like where those two pieces intersect. Like uh, and like Florida Swamp Maoists, uh, this idea of a Maoist cell sort of intersects with like these sort of political questions we're thinking about. But it's also about like massive weirdos who who want to mount a revolution in the United States. And like, that's like, like that's, I think the secret sauce for an unknown army's one shot is, is making it feel part of people's real immediate experiences, but also tapping into the weirdness of the world. This is like, it still ties into my thoughts and my reimagining of, I, don't, I think it's book three has um, hashtag occupy the tower which is like meant to be like an SJW woke group that doesn't like magic. And I'm thinking that's a terror. That's, that's boring. Cause there's already like yeah. plenty of anti-magic groups. And in my reimagining, they are people who know about the invisible clergy and they think that, and because the invisible clergy is kind of a representative of the power structures, which that exist in the real world, which means patriarchy and white supremacy, they want to, send avatars up or replace avatars in order to make sure the next cosmos is better than this one that's a really good campaign concept because there is that part of the invisible clergy that as like you know some uh like as as someone who's socialist that like sort of brush like oh there's like this great i play it like an anarchist character in max's game and one of the main protags in that game is an avatar of the true king and they have this great like relationship where like she she sees him as kind of like a weird dad, but also like really brushes, like dislikes the idea of a king. And like that's, there's like something really there, David, that I think is excellent. Like there's the type of person that's going to hear about the clergy and just be like, I don't want reality to be determined by a bunch of assholes who think that they're better than me. <laughs> and it's also like as a goal, it is like really kind of noble because the idea is like yeah. when the universe resets we're just going to be everything is going to be reduced to potential energy and used as the building blocks of the next universe we're not going to see it but the idea of you using your political beliefs is like okay we're going to make sure that the next cosmos is better than this one i mean that's that's yeah, a solid noble a, passion yeah there's a there's a saying that people bandy around a lot, which is uh we plant trees that we will never sit under i forget exactly how it goes we, we plant a tree yes, yeah I know. like oh, that's very society easy. is society is best when old men plant trees that they would never sit under or something like that i heard yeah. that yeah like people say that a lot doing power building and that's also like, like it's a, really hit on it's a good combination <laughs> of like the real world like the sort of like problems that people face and also super high concept like it's the next cosmos yeah like i yeah absolutely you know in a way it's like you know it's interesting because like reading 
the second book I, I read about the milk and I'm like, there's something here, but this isn't it, if that makes sense. Yes. And like a lot of the factions in book two are like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, we felt the same way about um, Ordo Corpulentus in a lot of ways. Ordo Corpulentus is the mm. one faction I will kind of stand for in three that I, I kind of really like. There's just not enough there, I think. Yeah. And my, my personal favorite by far is Flex Echo, far as things that I feel are gameable and interesting. Whereas Ordo Corpulentus had just, it needs more spice. So does the milk. Milk yeah, the, I feel like what you've what you've hit on, David, is a better version of the milk. Like it's it it feels potent and real and visceral in a way that I to to be honest, like I think there's some great ideas in the milk, but the milk feels kind of hollow. The milk, sort of. the milk, like even just from the name, it just seems like I can just imagine Greg Stoll's just like sitting at his table, looking like at a carton of milk and thinking of like milk gotten kids and like sp- like coming up with that idea, but not like developing it properly. Like I think this is the problem with a lot of people who got into UA in second edition and then read third edition and are critical of it. And I feel I feel I'm guilty of this too. But when I hear you talk about it and you bring up all the good things about third edition, I'm like, yeah, actually you're right. But I think what 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 actually <laughs> turn people off is the factions and what happened with the faction and how many of the second ed factions ended up if they carried over at all to the third edition they felt like flaccid like shadows of what they used to be and that was in in the universe it was like because of the whisper war and all that but i'm like for example like the new inquisition is much less cool than it used to be and i like the idea of alex abel becoming like a like a what's his name howard howard hughes type and stuff but it isn't developed enough to be cool as we were saying before like Lexico is clearly the best of the new factions because it's the most well-developed. It's really interesting when this comes up a lot, too. So, like, my... So, as you know, like, I played 2E for a while and played 2E player. And so, Max, my GM, was like, don't read anything... The forbidden section yeah, of the their, book. Don't read the forbidden... Well, he's like, I can't make you not read it, But, like, it's better if you don't. And so... I do kind of love that. Yeah, I very religiously followed that advice. I didn't read anything past... The, the part where I started my character, essentially. You aren't ready for this knowledge yet. And so then we started playing three. And I, I followed basically the same advice, but eventually I wanted to run games. And so eventually you have to read the other stuff. And so for three, I did. And I ended up reading eventually the faction stuff. I still haven't read any of the faction information in 2E. There's nothing for me to be attached to. To feel like any sense of loss. Over. That's the thing. Uh, <laughs> and, and and for you, if you go back and read the second end stuff, you could just be like, actually, these are great. I'll just put these straight to the third end. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to me, who's um, like, it feels there is a, like a little bit of a sense of loss in yeah. some of the weakness, like the weakness of the factions versus how they used to be. But that's silly. I, I can just take what was then and do it now. There's nothing stopping me. I think part of it is the. Just it's the natural result of the way third edition sort of tries to de-emphasize all the deepest lore of unknown armies in favor of giving GMs and players the tools, come up with their own weird occult conspiracies. And that's great. I'm glad that they have it and emphasize that the downside of that is just that Greg Stolze and all the other unknown armies writers are so good at coming up with those <laughs> that I love reading about them. Yeah, and I've always had kind of a, a take it or leave it attitude towards that makes me a little less precious about some of that stuff. But I will also say one thing that's kind of fun about that is uh, I'm on the Unknown Armies Facebook group. And so there's this long period of time where like I hear about factions just from what people say about them 
on the Unknown Armies fan club group. And so like it gives me this, this really interesting kind of like partial picture of what the original looks That's like it's in character. It's like learning Yeah, rumors. it's like experiencing it firsthand in a way. <laughs> a recommended experience, to be honest. <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah, we need... I think what you're doing with the adventures is good. I would like people to make more things on Stratosphere. We with, need more adventures. We, we need more scenarios. Okay. We don't just... To me, writing a scenario is the easy part it's the rules that and i had a moment where i realized oh wait maybe this is a skill i have that could be valuable to other people and not just i'm not just assuming it was easy for everyone (laughs) coming up with adept schools and avatars is great i love them i've come up with some of my own i've used ones that other people put up on the stratosphere in my own games but having one shots or scenarios to insert into pre-existing campaigns as a gm resource available is great there's a lot of creative shit that came out for UA in earlier editions, and I'd love to see a return to that with third edition. People have been producing, like, especially adept schools, even more than avatars, um, for years. Like, yeah, producing see, new ones. Fun. They're fun. They're fun, and it's but it's relatively easy compared to what Catherine's trying to do with making see, adventures. To me, that's yes. the hard part. I I like I want to make adept school if I run this game that i'm planning on that's based on makers and like to me approaching how to how to rules make in a dev school is just a nightmare like to me that's the hard part scenario building is easy making rules um, oh <laughs> the nice thing is someone that has come up with a whoa i came up with one adept school and a couple avatar um or at least i've written them up excuse me charge structure is the most crunchy bit a lot of it is just coming up with in fiction effects that seem thematic for the school in some way you don't need you know you don't need to think in terms of oh how many d8s of damage does this do it's just all right this ability lets you fly for x number of seconds yeah it's definitely easier than D, but still it's still to me a little more challenging than uh yeah than i got you building so i'm glad avatars are easy because there's way less to write yeah that's but, but, true. but people I don't mean, actually make that many like custom avatars compared to uh, um to adept schools i feel because you can't come up with an avatar school dedicated to jerking off thompson that's why well yeah maybe not well, that's a challenge of anything, but that's not for this episode. Avatar of the Chronic Masturbator. Catherine, you do know about Frank's last adept school he posted on the Stratosphere. Because if you don't, that would be oh, a complete Frank malapun. that posted that? Yes, <laughs> yes uh, I was the one who made Praviturgy. Uh, that is the only thing I have on the Stratosphere thus far. Um, most of my stuff won't be like that, but some of it will. <laughs> well, I might hit you up for advice if I do go through uh, with making Glad this, to give it. this this maker school that I want to make at some point. Uh, in my experience, once you have a solid paradox nailed down, a lot of it comes. A lot of it just comes kind of naturally from there. I feel that like one of the reasons why it's easy to make adept schools than avatars is because whenever you when you propose an avatar, you kind of have to you end up in a position where you have to defend it as being like this is a because there's only like there's a finite number of av- of archetypes. While with yeah. adept and they schools, have to be it could in be everyone's subconscious. Yeah, exactly. Or at least enough people to yeah. to be part of the global collective unconsciousness. Because adept schools are so idiosyncratic, you can do whatever the fuck you want and it's not a problem yeah yeah like the current ad school i'm working on is about uh drinking oil uh what kind of oil yeah what kind of uh, is that petroleum, petroleum or petroleum okay there's an abby howard comic about that. 
I was not familiar with that. Actually, it's, it's, like that a, it's like a gag comic. It's it's like four panels, but it's fun. I was um, being primarily uh, inspired by Reza Negrostani Cyclonopedia. So those were just some, like those were some words that you just said. yeah. That was, those are words. <laughs> I don't know what they mean. We should cut that. Um, I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, anything else that related to one shots that you'd like to bring up, Kate or Torn? There uh, should be more of them. Yeah, I agree. Uh, watch I agree. out Pick for uh, watch out for my uh, anthology. It'll probably be coming out in August. That's my tentative release date. Um, it will be called One Shots by Catherine Cargill. <laughs> Maybe something else, depending on if Atlas makes me name name it something else. Yeah, and uh, in the meantime, I do have um, a scripted audio sitcom podca- podcast, uh, True Tales of the Illuminati, which is at truetalesteam.com. All right. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, that that sitcom I should say is about um, conspiracies gone horrible. I'm sure plenty of our listeners are very interested in that. Yes, it's it sounds much right up there. Better than Unknown Army. <laughs> oh, Unknown Army can get very stupid. Fair, trust me. Fair. <laughs> as far as us, like, comment, subscribe, all that usual shit. Give us a call at one eight three 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 FM. RDIO. Yes, that's an actual phone number. Yes, you want to hear your caller questions. Yes, we'll put them on the show. Yes, you'll get famous. Does it cost anything to call this number? Nope. It is a toll-free number. Again, the number is 18333-FM-RDIO. With that, listeners, we're going to leave you alone for a while.